everyone. Welcome to another episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, we have the distinct pleasure of having on our show esteemed award-winning author David Ewald. David Ewald is currently working as a projects editor for Reuters, and he writes for a wide range of media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Previously, David was deputy editor of Forbes magazine, where he wrote numerous in-depth cover stories on technology companies like Oculus VR and Magic Leap. David is regarded as an expert on the intersection of technology and gaming, and he's been interviewed by many amazing uh, outlets like the New York Times and the National Public Radio. More importantly, though, David is also the author of books, Dice and Men, the story of Dungeons and Dragons and people who play it, and Defying Reality, the inside story of virtual reality revolution. So I most recently read his second book, Defying Reality, which is a fascinating exploration of the history, the development, and more importantly, the future of virtual reality. So we're lucky to have David on the show today. Welcome, David. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk to you. So everyone has kind of this aha moment or often called kind of an origin story when it comes to VR. Would you be able to share yours? What sparked you into this whole realm of virtual reality? Well, I, I think I had a, a pretty early spark in that when I was a kid, I was really into cyberpunk fantasy and science fiction. So I, you know, saw the movies uh, 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 that had VR in them in the 1980s. I used to play a lot of role-playing games that had virtual reality in them, and I read uh, uh, books like like a Neuromancer. And I think Neuromancer in particular was one of those ones where I read that and I was like, this is just the coolest thing. Like, yes, I want to be able to put on some hardware and go into the world of computers. Uh, and of course it was, it was fantasy at that point. And for decades I was kind of, you know, the disappointed consumer where I tried the headsets that actually came out and they were just, you know, they were terrible for a long time, or at least they were terrible at the level that I could afford to purchase them uh, until uh, a couple years ago, until um, post the Oculus Rift Kickstarter. Um, I had heard about the Rift. I had sort of been following it and was curious, but very, very skeptical until I tried it. And I did a demo of the Oculus Rift when it was, you know, just being kickstarted. It was still very new. It was still, you know, very much sort of like this lab apparatus. But I tried it and it and it worked. It didn't make me sick to my stomach. And I would say that was my real origin moment as far as, as modern VR goes. I tried that and I was just, I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is real VR. It's finally here. It works. And it made me want to really get into the subject and find out all the details. You know, how, where has this technology come from? Uh, how has it evolved? And what does it mean for our, our society, for business, for the world around us? Cool. So as I alluded to, I've read your book and again, was fascinated by it. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, when you were writing your book, what was kind of your favorite part or story throughout the sort of development of your chapters? Well, I know I tried a lot of different demos and things that were really exciting. Uh, uh, 
the one that that stood out that was kind of an important moment for me was uh, once the Oculus Rift was coming out, and I think this must have been the Crystal Cove demo. Um, it was at the first ever uh, Oculus Connect conference. They were demoing that headset for people. And I ran through a demo that many people have tried by now on the Oculus Rift. It's the basic, like startup demo when you started the the uh, when you start a Rift, where it's got you know you're standing in front of a mirror, you're standing on a tower, uh, looking down at a city below you, and it's all these experiences that sort of give you a little taste of virtual reality. But I remember one in particular, which is you're standing in like an open, large open museum. And there's a rumbling and a, and, a, and, a, and a thundering from around the corner and a Tyrannosaurus Rex comes around the corner and starts walking towards you. And that was such a profound moment for me because I didn't react like somebody who was standing in a hotel room doing a virtual reality demo. Like lizard parts of my brain lit up when I saw that Tyrannosaurus Rex and I reacted like an animal who uh, saw a predator cord, some cords coming towards them it was a it was very real to me because parts of my brain really recognized it as wow this is happening and i remember you know heartbeat accelerating and hair standing up on my neck and all these sort of autonomic nervous system things that were completely you know not under my control um but that moment was the first time where not only was i convinced by the technology but like it was real for all effects and purposes, there was a there was a T-Rex in that hotel room, and it was completely real, and I was immersed. And that was one of the moments where I was like, okay, this is more than just super cool technology. This is this is something entirely new to my experience and in a, in a way to human experience. I had some other demos that were also you know amazing when I was writing the book. Um, there's a whole chapter about Magic Leap in there their uh, uh, glasses, their headset. Um, the first time I tried their product, I was just excited and blown away, especially because no one had really talked publicly about what they were doing. Uh, my story with them was really the first time where they'd come out and talked about the company. And I remember the first time trying on that headset and just seeing stuff fly around me in the room and TV screens floating in midair and some scenes from Star Wars with AT-AT stomping around. And it was in the real world. And that was another one of those profound moments where I realized, oh, you know, these amazing virtual beings and machines and things don't have to exist only in a separate reality they can sort of spill out into our own and the possibilities of that were super exciting see even as as a teacher right now as soon as i start put putting headsets on students they're everyone like unequivocally everyone has that reaction it's like oh my gosh this is so real and so you know it's hard to get headsets on millions of people it's been a slow sort of growth curve but it's such a natural reaction by almost everyone once you get a, a real immersive headset on yeah i think in part because the technology was sort of delayed for so long and never really worked the way people wanted it we've heard about virtual reality for a long time um we're just now really getting to try it and enjoy it at a level that you know we all accept you know other technologies come along and we've never seen anything like this before you know when smartphones came out it wasn't like we really had smartphones for 30 years you know we maybe had you know things like the apple newton which were sort of proto devices but you know the iphone came out and no one had ever you know 
I guess the point is I'm trying to make is that this we were we were waiting for this so long that when people try it now they're just surprised like oh my god it really works it's so real it's just such like a sort of profound experience that you know oh yeah I've been waiting for this I've heard about it but it works now I agree so I'm a bit of a well obviously otherwise I wouldn't run this fan, uh, this podcast I'm a bit of a VR fanboy so I was enthralled with some of your vignettes and stories about. Palmer Lucky, and uh, for those that the listeners out there who aren't aware, he's one of the founders of Oculus. What was it like to meet him? Well, Palmer's an amazing character, and I think one of the things that's most interesting about him is just he's an, a really normal guy. You know, working at Forbes for almost a decade, I met a lot of inventors especially met a lot of, of different you know entrepreneurs and guys starting businesses and a lot of billionaires, which is kind of eventually what Palmer became. Palmer's really not like any of them. Like you would meet with him and he just seemed like one of my friends. Um, he's nerdy, but not uh, in a, uh, you know, like an isolationist way. A lot of people who are really techie don't have good social skills. Palmer's just really techie, but also very personable, very friendly. He just seems like this cool kind of, you know, California, you know, geeky kid who wants to talk about video games and, you know, play them with you too. You know, a lot of times he'd want to play stuff and, you know, or or he'd meet people and they'd talk about the games that they were going to play. So he was really... One of the things that set him apart was just that, just like how passionate he was about using the technology and about experiencing it. And it wasn't just, you know, a case like a lot of these entrepreneurs, they get into a business because they see dollar signs and they realize the potential impact of a technology and the potential impact of their business, but they're not passionate about actually using it or doing it. And Palmer was always very, very passionate about, you know, he built VR because he wanted VR. He looked at the product landscape and didn't see the headset that he wanted. So that's why he built it. He wasn't trying to start a multi-billion dollar company. He was trying to have a headset that he'd be happy with. And I think that makes him a very interesting person. And also he was, you know, just a good person to sit down and talk to. Cool. And he was homeschooled too. So it was a bit surprising that, you know, his social skills were that good given he was a homeschooled boy. Yeah, that can be a difficult in a lot of homeschooling cases, you know, when the kids don't get as much social interaction with their peers, but you you never know it from, from talking to Palmer. I mean, he's a, he's a charming guy. One of your chapters, I can't remember which one you talked a lot about how VR is moving the movie slash video industry and a section within there really struck me. And you, you talked about how you were experiencing almost like it was you were in it, like an Indiana Jones adventure. Mm-hmm. Can you tell listeners a bit more about that experience and what kind of headset was used for that? So um, you, I, I think you're referring to an experience I did at uh, the Sundance Film Festival yes. a couple of years back. And Sundance is interesting because they have this whole section called New Frontiers. And it's partly just sort of experimental film. So you got you get, you know, lots of just sort of, you know, more traditional or digital film stuff that are just playing with different ideas. But it, increasingly in the last couple of years, it's really expanded out to be about virtual reality and augmented reality because that's i mean that's the most exciting thing that's happening right now in this sort of narrative storytelling um there was a particular uh uh, experience called real virtuality um it was a multi-user 
immersive simulation. So what was cool is that, you know, a lot of these things you put on a headset and maybe it's it's interactive, but it's like somebody who's in another place and you're connecting with them over the internet. This was actually two people put on uh, uh, headsets in the same room and we were connected to each other in the same environment. Um, if anybody uh, listening has done... Uh, uh, the virtual reality experiences offered by The Void. They have a couple different locations now around the country. It was sort of like that, but this was a year before I ever saw The Void. So myself and another festival attendee put on these these Rift headsets and these specially designed backpacks that uh, that had motion tracking in them. We had little things we attached to our feet and to our arms. So the system was doing full body tracking which was meaningful mm. for my own presence but also because i could look at this other person who was in the environment with me and i would see them i would see them walking around um if he waved to me i would see his hands moving around and we went through as you say this kind of indiana jones style simulation you know the part that really stood out for me was literally we're sort of going through a abandoned temple in the jungle and we had to cross a cross a, a, a chasm on like a rickety ladder and and dodge past cobwebs and do all these sort of very Indiana Jones things. But it was another one of those instances where because of the realness of the simulation, we really kind of forgot that we were, you know, standing again in like a hotel room, but you know, we were really where we were. But that multi-user aspect was also so compelling. Um, there was a moment in particular where we're crossing that chasm where, you know, first of all, I had to go through the sort of scary moment of, oh, I've got to dash across this chasm and this rickety and you get scared, you know, oh, I'm going to fall into the chasm. Or of course, you know, you're not really over a chasm. You're just walking across a hotel room. But when you see the chasm, you think it's real. But what was really special was when I got to the other side. I realized I'd left my partner behind and I turned around and he was standing there and was just petrified to walk across. So I kind of had to lean over and hold my hand out and help him across. And that social interaction of being with another person in the same environment completely helped sell it, you know, because now it's not just me believing the illusion, the fact that somebody else was there and that they were also committed to it really just made the whole thing so real. It was really incredible. And did you have control over the narrative? I mean, that's one of the struggles, I guess, with trying to tell a story in VR is, you know, normal storytelling, as you, you talk about in your book, normal storytelling without VR, you, it's linear and you basically, you control the narrative where the person's perspective or point of view is all controlled by, you know, the, the author. Whereas in this instance, and then many other VR instances, People don't necessarily have that sort of ability to control the narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, this was a pretty early simulation. I mean, this is now going back to like 2016, I guess this was. So it was, it, we were controlling it in as much as, you know, we were walking through the experience. And there was a few things that required uh, sort of narrative triggers. Um, grab okay. this torch or, you know, touch this thing and that would move the narrative along. But mostly it was just sort of a static experience we were walking through. Yeah. Um, but you're right, you know, being able to control the narrative is such a important element. And that's something that I think is is happening more and more in VR now as sensors and controls are getting a lot better. 
Uh, one thing that I'm seeing a lot in demos now is uh, eye tracking. So eye tracking is a big technology that I think is going to feature heavily in the next generation of VR headsets. And eye tracking is great because that can be the perfect trigger for controlling a narrative. Like if you're in a, a VR story, the story can wait to see, oh, he's looking at this car. So now the car is going to start and he can get into it. Or there can be people in a room, you know, you're doing maybe a historical reenaction. You're at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Um, Thomas Jefferson's going to wait until you look at him before he starts giving his speech. So I think there a lot of that stuff dealing with narrative and making it more self-propelled and control was really just waiting for the hardware to get better and for the sensing technology to get better. But uh, that's going to be a huge thing in the coming years too, is people really embracing that and making you know their interactive stuff even more interactive. Cool. So in your book, again, sorry, I'm I'm not quick on the chapters, but I remember you mentioned the application Fantastic Contraption, which used to be used to be just a standard PC game, and now you can play this Fantastic Contraption game where you're building stuff in VR. Is it better in VR? Do you remember when you played it, whether you, you enjoyed it that much more in the VR realm? Yeah, I think so. I think that's one of those games where where it really helps to be in the space. You know, the idea of Fantastic Contraption is that you're, you're putting together pieces of machine and letting the machine run across a little track to an objective. Um, that's easily done on a computer screen and in 2D, but when you're in an immersive environment and can move around that whole process of building... I mean that's a that's a pretty fundamental human activity. You're putting something together. You're you're you know putting wheels on a device. You're letting it move. You're putting an arm on it. But if when you're building something, whether you're in your garage or a shop or something or just in your living room, you want to be able to turn it around and look at it from different angles and walk around it and just, like that's a inherently a very interactive situation where you want that 3D, you want that inversive environment. And Fantastic Contraption is one of those games where, yeah, I just sort of forgot where I was and played that game and just sort of, you know, even with this clunky headset on and you're trailing wires and like moving around the room and picking up this device and seeing how it moves, like that's one of those things where it definitely is better, I think, to be in a virtual environment than just sort of it makes sense, right? If you're constructing a 3D object, it makes sense mm. to be in a 3D environment. You know, if you limit yourself to looking at a simulation on a flat screen, you're losing something in, in the information. And we've come up with ways to simulate that 3D environment on a regular computer. You know, you press a button on the keyboard or you use your mouse to rotate the scene. And that gives you the illusion of 3D on a computer screen. But it's just not the same as actually being there in the environment. No, it's not. I, I would concur with you on that. It's, it's funny because, um, you know, as educators, one of the biggest sort of criticisms is that we jump on too many bandwagons and technology is one of them. And so when you introduce something like VR to teachers, which many of us, many of us are trying to do, you know, you have to be hesitant to make sure that whatever you're introducing them to, to is worthwhile and not something that they could do just as easily on a computer or with a textbook, etc. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why I asked that question is there are reasons to use VR in education, but 
not always, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a related element of that is for something like Fantastic Contraption, but this could also be any other sort of, you know, interactive environment for education. Being there is is a much uh, a more powerful experience, but it's also so much easier. I mean, you think, oh, this is super high tech and we have to have a headset. Like, it seems like it's going to be complex. But think about it this way. Let's say, you know, you're teaching a, a science or engineering class. You want to do something like Fantastic Contraption. You want to teach your kids how to build a simple machine. Well, if you did that in a computer simulation on a PC on somebody's desktop, not only do you have to teach them how to build the, the machine, but you have to teach them how to use that program. You've got to teach them, okay, press the A button to turn your view left. Press the D button to turn your view right. Press E to move in. Press the right mouse button to grab an object. Move the mouse to pick it up. Press the M button to zoom out. Like you've got to, they've got to learn the interface, right? They've got to learn how to use the program. Yep. In virtual reality, if you put that same kid into something like Fantastic Contraption, into a virtual environment where it's just like, okay, now build a machine, everything they do is totally intuitive. Once they're in the environment, they know how to pick up a wheel, attach it to this device, because that's the instruction. Walk over to it with your hand, grab the virtual object, move the virtual object, put it on the thing. Like It doesn't require instruction. It's so much easier, and it doesn't keep the learning experience at like arm's distance, where there's this obvious you know uh, interface that you have to work your way through like it just it's you're there in the environment you see the device you build it you can walk around it it's so much easier and it just makes a lot more sense if you're trying to learn something that's the way to do it good point uh speaking of that then so games movies you know heaven forbid the porn industry like vr adoption in those areas has been more of a steep curve than in education. Why do you think that's the case? Why has VR not sort of hooked its teeth into education yet? Well, I think it's a couple of things. One is, you know, as you identified earlier, I think there's a little bit of wariness about, you know, uh, educators not just wanting to get sucked into the, the bright, shiny new thing, and especially, you know, administrators not wanting to invest money into something that turns out to not really be a big deal or to not be useful. So there's certainly a little bit of hesitation there. I would say the other really big thing is that, you know, VR is so new and expensive and complicated. Um, to get a really good VR experience up until recently, you needed a powerful computer to connect a, a, a Rift or a, or, a, or a Vive or some other device to the computer. So, I mean, you're talking about thousands of dollars just to get one sort of interface. Sure, you could do a lower end experience. You could do like a, a cell phone based experience, but it's not as good. It's not as immersive. So just the, the, the newness of the technology and how much of an investment it required um, was really just a huge barrier. Um, that's already dropping away. I mean, some of the portable devices now are really, really good, um, are almost as good as the PC-based one. Um, they're certainly, you know, at a price that's comparable to, I mean, schools will buy iPads for students or they'll buy tablet computers for their students to use. And now the really good VR headsets are sort of in that same price area and they don't require as, as, as much of an investment. Um, so I think that's a, 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 a 
a hurdle that's going to fall away in the next couple of years. But it's also just, you know, the technology is so new and different and people have to get used to the idea of it. I would say there's also, you know, a little bit of fear about it because this is not simply like, you know, a, a tablet or something that is a new form factor, but we're familiar with. I mean, computers have been in in classrooms for decades now. So when an educator was like, oh, I want to give my students tablet computers, no one was, you know, their minds weren't blown by that because they're like, oh, yeah, I had a computer in my classroom in the 1980s. Sure, it was a, it was a, it was an Apple II, but, you know, they had a computer then. My kids have a computer now. It's no big deal. But nobody's ever had VR in a classroom before. So there's going to be a certain bit of, I think, fear and just like, what is this? Is good, good for my kids? And that's another thing. It'll just take time for more people to try and get used to it until it's more accepted. Well, and you alluded to this fear in your book. And so I'm, I'm going to quote you right from the book. At Close to the end, you said, for now, we should keep children away from VR because we still don't have enough understanding or research of the effects. And do you, do you still feel that way? Like what, tell me a little bit about what your sort of thinking was with that quote. Well, yeah, I, feel, I still think there's something to that with some caveats. So we're talking about several different things there. One is there are... Um, so just simple sort of medical concerns. When these headsets first came out, kids really hadn't spent enough time with them. And there, there were, and there still are some concerns about, well, this is putting a screen super close to your face. It's causing your eyes to focus in a, stra- in a, in a strange way. Like we don't know for a developing child, what is this going to do to your vision? Like if a kid spends a ton of time in VR, while they're uh, they're they're still growing, it could be bad for their eyesight. We don't really know enough about that yet. So I would say that's definitely not. I don't think we should. You know, there's a vision. For instance, we'll go back to education of like virtual classrooms, where a kid puts on a headset for like eight hours a day to visit yeah. a classroom. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good idea. It might be, but we just don't have enough research and enough time to see like okay does this is this going to screw up kids visions like we, we need more research to figure out is that actually going to work and like is this going to be good for kids the other thing is you know there's some there's a, there are still some questions about well what is this just due to your psyche and to your your emotional development um i tend to think that there are a lot of positives about VR for children and education just being one of them. But I think the sort of experience of being in VR is a very, people have talked about VR as a a machine for, for conveying emotion that it's uh, it builds compassion because it puts you into other people's shoes. Um, And I think that's something that's incredibly powerful for children that, whether it's sort of through an educational uh, uh, simulation they're doing, you know, they can actually be in a war or visit a concentration camp, or they can see some historical event, like being able to experience it for themselves is incredibly powerful. And they're going to learn a lot and take a lot away from that. At the same time, there's also kind of a danger of what happens if like, we put a kid in a war simulation. That's a little too real. Like, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be giving adolescents PTSD because they were an incredibly simulated Iraq war, an incredibly good Iraq war simulation. And that's, you know, 
being a little glib, but you know, there's something to it. So I think for now it's not a major worry just because nothing is really that good yet at, you know, but it's something that we want to keep an eye on and certainly think about with, you know, the more that kids are using these devices, you know, until we figure out exactly what we're doing, we probably want to monitor it and be careful and, you know, not let the kid just run loose eight hours a day with one of these things on their head. Good advice. So speaking of advice, uh, again, at, in, in the end of your book, you, you make this prediction, which many do, that virtual reality, especially the immersive kind, is it's here to stay. It's not going away. Kind of like you talking about the, the PC. I, I remember those days. So as a teacher in the, would have been the 90s, we just were getting reliable internet. And I remember having one PC at the back of my classroom and not really knowing at that time what to do with it. And I feel like we're kind of there now with VR. So you've already talked about advice or caution for teachers in regards to screen time. Is there any other advice? If you had a room full of teachers, what kind of advice might you give them as they start to see this inevitable future? Well, um, I think it's gonna, like you say, it's, it's inevitable, and I think it's the technology is so convincing, and the benefits of it are so profound. Like I, I don't see a world where this doesn't become a major tool. I know for use everywhere, but particularly in education, just because, you know, you get that, that experience for yourself. I think teachers need to educate themselves about this. I think it'll be really helpful for the teacher to be the person in the room who knows the most about VR, who has tried all the experiences for themselves. This is definitely not a technology where you just want to hand it to the kid and let them figure it out for themselves and let them find their own experiences. You know, it was bad enough in the 90s if you just put a kid on the on the, the PC in the back of the room, they could go on the internet, who knows what they're Googling for, who knows what their sites are going to. This is way worse. If you're not in charge of that device and you don't know what the kid is doing, they could end up experiencing some really messed up stuff. Um, and you just don't want that to happen. There is some incredibly powerful stuff, and I think kids will benefit a lot from it. But the, the teacher needs to be in charge, and the teacher needs to know exactly what it is that the students are doing. And I think that'll help a lot, too, because, you know, the kid – the best-case scenario with VR in education is that children are going to have a very profound experience. That's what's great about VR is that, you know, not just am I going to read a page in a book. Look, I love reading. I'm a writer. But there's something to be said for – it's a very different experience to read a page in a book about the Declaration of Independence versus send the kid back, have them standing in the room there in Philadelphia, watching the Declaration get signed, watching people give their speeches. That is such a more profound experience. And while watching a piece of paper get signed might be kind of dry, you put that kid in something more dramatic, you put them into a, a war simulation or maybe, you know, Kids read Anne Frank, for instance. You know, every every school child reads the diary of Anne Frank. What happens when they enter into a simulation and they're there in the attic with her? Like that's a potentially potentially incredibly profound learning experience, but that's also potentially really scary, could be damaging to a kid. Like so the teacher really needs to help mediate these experiences and help them get all the benefits of experiencing something VR while at the same time, you know, holding their hand and walking them through it and be like, well, what did you learn from there? You understand this was not real, yeah. right? But what was this experience like for you? What are the takeaways? The teacher really needs to, to mediate and help them through this experience. Well said. Amen. Um, listen, I'm mindful of your time. So 
often listeners might want to kind of follow. Obviously, hopefully they read your book because that's what sparked me. But uh, besides reading your books, how else might listeners get a hold of you or send you information? Well, anybody can go to my website, which is davidmewalt.com, or I've got links to all my social media stuff on there. My Twitter is dewalt, D-E-W-A-L-T. Uh, my email address is up on the website, too, if people want to email me, or you know, I email back, even if I'm slow to respond. So, But basically, go into that site and social media, you'll find all my 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 books and my stories about this stuff on other outlets and, and can reach me there. Awesome. 